Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Today we are looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Biblical assurance for Christians that how all things work together for good to those who love God. If you're able, I want you to stand with me. I'm going to read three verses today, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. We'll be getting into verses 29 and 30 in coming weeks. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, Lord. Use your word in our lives today, Lord. Open our hearts to receive your message. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans 8.28 is a verse everyone knows, everybody thinks they understand, and many people mangle. One time I heard someone try to quote it, and it came out something like this, God works good for those who help themselves. (laughs) Romans 8.28 teaches the opposite of that. Embedded in the Romans 8 context of the Holy Spirit's work in believers, process of sanctification, angling towards Christ-likeness. There may be no greater merciful truth portraying a God-centered, monergistic view of all things than Romans 8.28. But we know we live in a man-centered world, a man-centered, self-determined world where people fight for prominence and they jockey for position and they run over anyone in their way, often living with no mercy. 17-year-old James Anthony Smith was killed last December for his $220 pair of sneakers. And then you have fictional fictional legalist uh, Javert from Les Miserables harassing Jean Valjean with this overactive sense of justice boiling over into vindictive hatred. A.W. Tozier put it this way, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished one unacquainted By taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, here is your human race. The exact opposite of the virtues in the Beatitudes are the qualities which distinguish human life and conduct. We find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of mercy, cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we fight back with every weapon at our disposal. Apart from abiding in Christ, we are a mess. Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
Left to our own devices, we muddy the waters. Firm-footed assurance erodes beneath our feet, and, and we absolutely need unchanging, bedrock biblical truth and assurance as we swim, literally swim upstream against man-centered, self-deterministic, perilous waters. We need the immovable rock of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to secure our souls. You need Romans 8, 28. It's living proof reassurance, and it assures us of God's eternal purposes. Verse 28 begins, and we know. And we know. And Paul is continuing to explain God helping believers who are awaiting final deliverance from the suffering that sin has brought into the world. And the Greek word know is oidomen, it's from oida, to see, and it means to understand, to have knowledge of, to be acquainted with, and Paul is referring to something they knew. Paul is referring to something believers know. This, this word of assurance is something that Paul and his Roman readers already knew. He's uttering well-known truth. This is a reminder of what we know. This is a reminder of what believers know. Biblical assurance for Christians of God's sovereign workings. And specifically in this passage, we see God's orchestration. We see God's love. We see God's call. And we see God's purpose. That God's orchestration and love and call and purpose assure us of God's sovereign workings. First, let me point out to you God's elaborate orchestration all things work together for good. All things work together for good. God makes, literally, God makes all things cooperate, work together with one another. The Greek word is synergy, to work together with, to be active together with, to work together like, like a group of doctors working on a patient, sometimes inflicting pain, but all for the patient's good. Or a medicine that is, has all these ingredients that work together to restore health. God causes his perfect workings. He permits, he allows, he causes, he ordains all things for our good. Everything he does is good. All of God's workings, you can call them merciful providences. The private ones that are just in your heart, the, the public ones that are on display for others to see, all for your good, some for your temporary good, and you see it right away, but all for your eternal good in Christ. God defines what is good. He is good. He works ultimate good. In his providence, God orchestrates every event of life, including suffering, including temptation, including sin, and he is doing so to accomplish your, your earthbound benefit, but most importantly, your eternal benefit benefit in Christ. God defines what is good. He is good. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll go there. Deuteronomy 8, verses 15 and 16. God just reminds the people of what he had done. Just one sampling here from the Old Testament of, of God reminding 
the people what God did. Verse 15, he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. And he brought you water out of the flinty rock and he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. And here's the reason, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. To do you good. God brings you through all these things and for them it was a land with fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground with no water. And he did it to humble them and to to test them and to do them good ultimately. To ultimately do them good. Romans 8.28 Paul doesn't say that that all suffering is good. All things, including suffering, work together for the good of believers. But Paul has suffering in mind in the context. Remember verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. Creation and bondage to decay, groaning for future redemption, suffering persecution even, you see at the end of this chapter, suffering persecution even for the name of Christ. If you're a Christian, you trusted in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, you you believe he died for your sins on the cross, you believe he was buried and that he rose on the third day and that he ascended to the Father and he's coming back with blessing for those who believe. If you believe that, then what God is doing right now is that God is working for your good and he is causing all things, all things to work together for your eternal good. And what he's doing is he's ripping you from sin. He is weaning you off the world. He is... He is drawing you nearer to himself and he's preparing you for heaven. We think about getting through today. We think about surviving. God is preparing us for heaven. Many Christians misinterpret this verse. They think, oh, I know what this means. God is promising me all kinds of good things. Jobs and money and health. Context shows Good is the glory that God will one day enable us to share with Christ. You trace back the the term glory and good in the Old Testament, and when it zeroes in on the good, it's signifying future blessings to come. Not just what you can see right now. This is end times good. This is future good for the people of God. This verse does not say that all things are intrinsically good or pleasant. You can go through the most agonizing trial, you can go through the most agonizing suffering and even evil that can come upon you, and God will use it for your good in Christ. Chrysostom said this, God uses painful things to show his great power. God uses painful things to show his great power. But we misunderstand him. Our tendency is to imagine God as he is not. There was a 2015 French film called The Brand New Testament. And in that film, God was depicted as a grumpy, sadistic old man living in Brussels who created humankind specifically to torment them, and he did so from his personal computer. The, The way the story rolls is that the daughter rebels against him, locks him out of his computer so he can no longer torment humans and and renders him powerless. That's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of man's imagining. 
God is not how sinful man portrays him. He is good. And he uses good and evil for his good purposes. You know what biblical truth does for you? Biblical truth engages you with full reality. Plants your feet in firm soil of full reality where you don't deny the truth, you don't ignore the truth, but you see God as he is, as the Bible portrays him, that God is almighty God, that he is Lord over all, that he is the creator, and that he is the personal governor of the entire universe. Which means that anyone claiming that there's another governor of the universe is wrong. Wayne Grudem said, God uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and our good. When evil comes into our lives, we have from the doctrine of providence deeper assurance that God causes all things to work together for good. Proverbs 16.4 tells us that God made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Psalm 76.10 says that God will even make the wrath of man to praise him. You take the example of Pharaoh. We're going to get into that when we get on into Romans 9. The example of Pharaoh is how clear it is that God uses evil for his glory and for the good of his people. God never does evil. God is never to be blamed for evil. But we know that God planned the crucifixion. And we know that God planned the crucifixion and blamed those that carried it out, rightly so, had to own their own sin. In the apostolic preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it before the world began. But then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 and 28. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Everybody's guilty for killing Jesus. To do whatever God's hand and plan predestined to take place. This is a mystery to us, but we know from Scripture, even Jesus, Luke twenty-two twenty-two, said the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God planned it. God planned the cross. God planned our redemption. It's why you could be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Regarding evil in general, Jesus said, Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. And then he said, Woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. James warns us not to blame God for the evil when he says in James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin. So never think of God as one who tempts us or is accountable for our temptation. We are told in the Bible again and again, resist evil and never blame God. Romans 8.28 doesn't say, though, that God never causes evil for his greater glory. 
The sovereign ruler over all does as he pleases. He is always good. Every purpose of his is good. The psalmist in Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. John Calvin said, Thieves, murderers, other evildoers are instruments of divine providence. The Lord himself uses these to carry out the judgments that he has determined with himself. One chapter in his institute says, is called, God so uses the works of the ungodly and so bends their minds to carry out his judgments that he remains pure from every stain. You can use the illustration from someone's life who's gone through deep, deep suffering and pain. You can use the example of Johnny Erickson Tata a quadriplegic who's confined to a wheelchair for more than 40 years, and she's asked, why does God allow suffering? And here's her answer. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. What does he love? He loves for people to enter into relationship with him and, and become more like Christ. So here you have a person whose life and testimony of how God can use a tragedy like a diving accident to impact the life of millions with a word about God's faithfulness and a word about God's goodness. See, for a believer, there is no need to vacillate and go back and forth and worry and doubt this, whether God is working all things together for good or not. There is no reason to be defeatist. There's no reason to think, well, it's just karma or whatever. We have ample biblical evidence that God essentially and actively causes all things to work together for our eternal good in Christ. Our assurance in Christ, you can trace it clearly back into the Old Testament record uh, pertaining to the people of God, people like Abraham and, and uh, Joseph and Job and Jonah and others. You, you look into the New Testament, you see people like Stephen and Paul himself and of course Jesus. The spectacular sin of the cross, God made, made sin work against itself. Matthew Henry calls this the concurrence of all providences for the good of those that are Christ's. The concurrence of all providences for the good of those that are Christ's. So tremendous trouble may come your way. You might go through the worst of suffering. And some of you are. Some of you have. And you might not be rescued. Here on earth, you might not be rescued. But don't fall into some indifferent, like stoic mindset where you're just resigned and unfeeling about it because, well, this is just the way the universe unravels it. And also don't go to the other extreme of some excessively cheerful, optimistic, Pollyanna-ish you know, viewpoint where it's like everything is good all the time. No, everything isn't good all the time. God is good all the time. And he uses good and evil for his good purposes. Think about this. We've been looking at this in Romans 8. The Spirit of God interceding for you is such a comfort, is it not? And, and the Spirit's intercessory prayers for us are always effective. Whatever happens, all is working together for our good. This is what Paul is understanding. Romans 8, 28. Paul understands God's purpose. And so therefore, he understands God's will and God's power are the causes that work everything together for good. God is willing and powerful to do this. The good is the goal toward which every believer 
is, is being led, that all things are cooperating so that the resurrection of the dead will happen, so that the glorification of God's people with Christ will happen, so that the redemptive, redemption of our bodies from the decay now plaguing creation because of sin will happen. There's this biblical assurance for Christians of God's elaborate orchestration of things where you look back and you're like, wow, that never could have just spontaneously happened. It's elaborate orchestration, which is God's. Secondly, I want to point you to God's eternal love. God's eternal love. All things work together for good for those who love God. For those who love God. The Greek is agapeo theos. It's loving God. And we love God. We know from the scriptures that we love God because he first loved us. We know this. Those who love God. This is, this is believers. This is, this is a code word for believers. Those who love God. Believers have a deep love for God. You can't take this verse and say, well, I'm going to pretend like I love God so that all things will work together for good for me and my life will turn out the way I want it. Socrates claimed something similar. He said, look, if you live a good life, I'm paraphrasing, if you live the good life, things will work out well for you. That's a very common idea then and now. It is far from the idea of Romans 8.28, completely at odds with the rest of Scripture. Our love for God is a response to what God has already done for us in Christ. That's what our love is. Uh, not as Socrates would say, if you l- live a, you know, a perfectly virtuous life, things will work well for you. It refers to those who by God's initiative have entered a loving relationship with him. Romans over and over again talks about God's love for us. This is the only place in Romans where it talks about our love for God. And so what, what, what does Paul know? What does he mutually know with all the people that he's writing to in Rome? What, is, what, are, we, what are we to know here? It's, it's not the, the traditional humanistic ideas of, you know, be good and things will work out good. That's totally unbiblical. It is a shared knowledge and experience of the grace of God in Christ. This is what he's talking about here. The shared knowledge and experience of God through Jesus Christ. He is pinpointing that it's Jesus. See, we love God. He's saying we love God. What are the evidences of it? You want to see some evidences? Maybe to study further. Look at John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Look at 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. I believe those are in your notes. What are the evidences of loving God? You go through those verses, make a list. What are all the things? What does Jesus say? What what does John say about those who love God? And you'll notice that a person who loves God, according to the Bible, has a love for Jesus that goes beyond mushy sentimentality. Okay, It goes beyond that. They have a love for Jesus. They have a strong abiding love for Jesus. Because he first loved them. Uh, They've got a compelling desire to please God and to obey his word. That's what someone who loves God is like. They've got a a fixation on gospel truth. You love Jesus because he saved you, so you are fixated on gospel truth. And And if you love God, you have this prominent desire to talk with God. Pray. Pour out your heart to him. In the midst of many things going on in your life. 
If you love God, you have an enthusiastic desire to tell others of the Savior who has saved you. You don't, you don't leave that to yourself. You're like, wow, I, have, I deserved hell, and, and God forgave me and saved me and gave me his joy and his peace, and I'm headed to heaven. I have to tell everyone about this. One person called our love for God all the outgoings of the soul's affections toward God as the chief good and highest end. It is our love to God that makes every providence sweet and therefore profitable. Those that love God make the best of all he does. Romans 8, 28. That's a promise for real believers. That's a promise for real Christians. Those who are living for Christ. Not those who claim to believe in God, but are living like the devil. This is not, I want everything to work out well for me, so I'm going to just try to love God. This is not a call to love God. This verse is not a call to love God. This is a statement. There's no command in this verse. There's no instruction in this verse. This is telling us something. It's not instructing us to do anything. It's telling us to receive something we already know. This is a confidence builder for Christians. And by the way, how do you know if you're a real believer? Do a little sidebar here. How do you know if you're a real believer? There's some things you must believe and live to be saved. I want to jot these words down. Sin. God. Judgment. Christ. The cross. Resurrection. And faith. Sin and God and judgment and Christ and cross and resurrection and faith. The Bible tells us, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What are you to believe of Jesus? It says in Romans 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe the message of the gospel. So to be saved, to really be a true believer, you need to believe and live the fact and know that you, that you sin. You would admit, I'm a sinner in need of saving. And Jesus died for my sins, and I, I believe that I'm a sinner. You have to believe you're a sinner. You can't be saved. And you need to believe who God is, that God is holy, and that he must punish sin. And sin is falling short of, of the expectations of God, and God expects us to trust him and to love him and to live for him, and we fall short of this. You need to know that there is judgment, that we are under God's just and holy judgment, his wrath, that we are sinners and there is a holy God and God is angry about sin and he is a good and just God. You need to believe what Jesus did, the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. Psalm 49 said, no one can pay a ransom for another. And then in the same context, a couple verses later, God will pay the ransom. Only God can pay the ransom. The God-man, Jesus, died for us. You need to believe the cross, that Jesus sinlessly lived the perfect life and died in our place. The Son took the wrath of God for us, died in our place. You need to believe in the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death. You need to have faith in that truth. You must trust Jesus Christ. You must believe him, not working for your salvation. You know, Romans 
I've mentioned this. Romans speaks often of God's love for believers. It assures you of God's love for you. But here, Romans 8, 28, the only reference to our love for God. The good that you experience as a believer is not repayment for your love for God. God is not like the people that Jesus refers to in Luke chapter 6, those who only love those who love them. The love believers have for God is a response to the love he first had for us while we were still sinners and enemies. Romans 5, 8 through 10. Those who love God describes God's people. It's not a statement of a requirement for God's blessing. God's people know that all things work together for good in their life. All things are not working together for good to those who hate him. So there's biblical assurance, not only of God's elaborate orchestration of all things and his eternal love, and also his call, his effective call. It says for those who are called. Now we're gonna get into this in much greater detail when we look into verses 29 and 30, but I wanna make a couple comments about this before we move on. Always in the New Testament, the idea of call is God's effective calling of his elect that brings them to salvation. Effectually called according to the eternal purpose of God. This call is effective. It's not according to any merit that you have. It's not according to any deserving that you have. But according to God's gracious purposes. God's grace. That's why this church is called Grace Church. More detail on this when we get into these next two verses. But suffice it to say that this verse and and the call being mentioned assures us of God's eternal purposes for us in Christ. And I'll make one more comment on this, this aspect of God's call. Contrary to popular opinion, our love for God is not primary to our relationship with God. A lot of people think it's all about us loving God. That is not primary to our relationship with God. Being called by God is what drives your relationship with God. The fact that he called you. That's the roots of your love for him. Due to God's calling to salvation, and the calling of God is the focus, not our resulting love for God, but due to God's calling to salvation, we love God. So what, that's, that describes a believer in Jesus. So this verse is giving us some, some great assurance of God's elaborate orchestration of all things, of his eternal love, of his effective call, and then his essential plan, his plan that he is unfolding. You notice that it says according to his purpose? According to his purpose. It's what he has set forth. It's what he has proposed. It's what he, the plan he consecrated, the purpose he set in motion that is resolute and will happen. Called according to his purpose. So Paul is, is he's really ending this word of encouragement with more descriptors of God's people as being called according to his purpose. Earlier in the service, Connor read Ephesians, part of Ephesians 1 about God's purpose for us in Christ. The purpose to which God has called his people, eternal life. Peter says that we are a peculiar people. We are called out. We are separate 
from the unbelieving world around us because of the grace of God, because of God's choosing us, because of Jesus. And while there, by the way, while there is no command in this verse, we are still called to be doers of this verse. There's no command here. There's no command. It's a statement. And we are to be doers of this word, to to be undiluted, to, to be freely serving Jesus. You want to be a doer of this word? Then keep reminding yourself of this truth in Romans 8, 28. I think every believer I know knows this verse. Keep reminding yourself that all things work together for your ultimate good in Christ. Keep reminding yourself of God's orchestration and his love and his call and his purpose. This will assure you in moments of wavering and doubt that that God has a sovereign plan and he is working it. You can know this with assurance. This is why this verse starts with, we know. This, This settles your soul in the toughest of times. When you don't see relief, when things haven't worked out yet, you can know with assurance that God will glorify himself and work for your eternal good and that he is actually doing this right now, that he is active, that he sees, he's not indifferent to your need, he, he cares for you, he loves you, you can cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. God is God. We are not. We are part of a bigger plan and purpose of God. Makes us grateful that God would even use us as his instruments of grace as he works gospel wonders in Christ. Do you know that you being able to to remind yourself of this truth of Romans 8.28 is actually a grace from God, a gift from God, that you could remind yourself and others of this truth? Magnificent grace from God. And timing is very crucial on this. Timing is very crucial because we want to see things right away and we want it all you know, resolved in 20 to 30 minutes, right? The key word that you could interject to, to really grasp this verse is the word ultimate. We know that all things are working together for ultimate good. It's not always immediate. See, God wants you to see that life is not always what it seems, that you can't always connect the dots and figure it all out. There is a plan unfolding. The macro doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence clear in Scripture, but the micro details, they're often confusing. That's why we need the compass of the Word of God to keep us on point. God uses everything at His disposal for His eternal purposes. Keep reminding yourself. Keep reminding yourself over and over and over again. And remind everyone you run into. And then keep loving Jesus. Just keep loving Jesus. Rely on what God has done in your life and will do in your life in Christ. His purposes because of the cross. Every one of us could have could have this happen. Every one of us could say this statement. I said it this week. How is this thing in my life working for good, Lord? I don't see or feel the good, 
I don't even see it on the horizon yet. It remains bad. It's getting worse. It's the opposite of good from my vantage point. It hurts. It's causing me stress and loss of sleep and distraction. And it's hard to fix my eyes on Jesus with this happening. We can all say this. This is, this is all of us. Years ago, my friend, Darren Madol, a good friend, he's a physical therapist, and I got injured and had to go into physical therapy, and you know they're designed to make you hurt, right? Physical therapists? So this is their whole plan to make you hurt. And I'm in physical therapy with him, and here's what he's trying to do all the time, every time we get together. He's trying to knock me off balance. Like, like he's trying to get me well, and he's knocking me off balance. I'm on this balance ball. I'm struggling to balance on the balance ball. And he's like, now I'm going to try to knock you off balance. Purposefully. Not for his glee and wicked joy, but literally to keep me on point, and to keep me alert, and to keep me aware. The resistance strengthened my core. Purposeful. We, what we do is we naturally veer to the right or the left, and we get out of balance. We start thinking things that aren't true. So that thing that it, you, in your life that you think is hurting you so much is actually helping you eternally. And, and God is going to cause it to work for your eternal good in Christ. You don't have that assurance if you're not a believer, but if you're a believer, you have that assurance, and it's forcing your eyes on Jesus. Okay? It's forcing you... To, to use spiritual muscles. It's your spiritual muscles get in tension and, and they're being exercised and you're getting stronger. It's like one person says, the nine reps are to get you to the tenth where you'll see the most growth. In James chapter one, there's, there's a group of Christians that are being written to and they're They're suffering. They're finding it hard going. They, they couldn't see how trials could be good. God calls them good and perfect gifts. Trials are good and perfect gifts to make you like Christ. And then there's this verse on down near the end of chapter 1 in Romans 1. And it, it, it says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. And we just take that as a relational verse and it's not a relational verse. It, you can apply it that way, and it's great for you, and it's great for me. It works. But it's a God verse. It's be quick to hear the word of God. In the context, you can, you can test it later. In the context, quick to hear the word of God, slow to speak a word to God, slow to anger at God. Don't get angry or blame God for things you wish didn't exist in your life. God, and then, and then they're pointed to the word, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And, and the, 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 word, the message getting to us in, in James 1 is, God is going to navigate you by his word safely through the trial. So keep trusting the plan. Keep trusting the plan. Aren't we superstitious, though? We are so superstitious. We try to connect all the dots. We tie up every loose end. We try to resolve every dilemma. Jesus was once approached about a man who was born blind. And the question that came to him was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they were used to making that connection. And Jesus startles them. 
and says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God would be manifested in him. For God's glory. The blindness was for the glory of God. They thought it was punishment. It was for praise. You think God's punishing you? He wants you to praise him. We have a hard time grasping or seeing in our situation how seemingly bad things can glorify God. It isn't God helps those who help themselves. And he is not gleefully sending suffering your way. But you don't always get what you want. But you will get what you need. We have trouble knowing and acting upon that truth that God orchestrates all things together for our good. You think of Joseph's story, the Old Testament story of Joseph and his brothers. Think of the winding road that God had him on. Think of the orchestration of that. I mean, here's Joseph, second youngest of, of Jacob's 12 sons, and Israel, Jacob, favors Joseph and makes him this ornate robe, and, and his brothers hate him. They can't speak kindly to him, and, and he has two dreams of his brothers bowing down to him, and it angers them, and they plot against him and throw him in a well and then sell him to some traveling Midianites. And the brothers tell their dad that your son was killed by wild animals. But, he, but Joseph was taken to Egypt and he was sold as a slave to Potiphar, captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into jail. While in jail, he interprets two dreams of Pharaoh's servants. And then, at some point in the future, he gets brought out of jail to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And as a result, he gets appointed second in command of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh's dream was about predicting seven years of famine. And so in these seven years of famine, they saved up all this food beforehand, and the brothers come to buy food in Egypt, and they come to buy it from Joseph. And they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years but he recognized them, and he keeps one of them in prison until the youngest, Benjamin, could be brought to him to make sure that they weren't spies, he tells them. And so on the next trip, they bring Benjamin, and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and he brings his whole family to Egypt, and, and then Jacob dies, and the brothers fear that Joseph is going to you know, wreak havoc on them and retaliate, and they beg for forgiveness, and, and they say that their father requested it. And here is Joseph's answer. Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. You know what God is doing in your life right now? He is curbing your lust for control by, by ordaining many moving parts and leaving lots unexplained. Rest in him. Live with a gospel-infused God-centered view of all things. Trust the plan. And one last thing I want to say. Stop playing it safe. Stop playing it safe. You've got nothing to lose. I plead with you. Trust Jesus Christ with your life. Stop playing it safe. Go for it on fourth down. Risk the rejection you fear. Press on in, in grief and Depression and anxiety and lack of purpose. See the goodness of God in the land of the living. See and savor Jesus Christ. He 
is Lord over all. He is the living word. He is the Christian's sufficiency and adequacy, and he is our very life. So don't waste this opportunity right this moment to trust Christ. Don't let this moment pass without entrusting your life to him. If you're a God-hater, love Christ. If you're a God-user, stop looking for a testimony and serve Christ. If you're a God-doubter, trust Christ. Dutch watchmaker and Christian Corey Ten Boom, who's buried right down the road at Fairhaven, lived from 1892 to 1983. She helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust. She was put in prison. She was mistreated by by guards for her acts and and she said you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And there's this poem that I that was attributed to her sharing this poem and I've known this poem since the early 80s. I didn't realize that she had actually shared this poem in some of the times when she spoke but it, it's called the weaver. I'll close with this. She says, it says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Romans 8.28 assures us of God's eternal purposes in Christ. And Lord, thank you that it is your orchestration and love and call and purpose that assure us of your sovereign working in our life and so we thank you we thank you for reminding us of something we know and may that become a very prominent prominent part of our life all for your glory we pray in jesus name amen